We are now ready for the third vision in Zechariah chapter 2. And allow me to read verse 1 to 5 into the record. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth of it and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. So we would have, I believe, Michael, and we would have another angel, lesser in stature, is coming out to meet him, who is helping him bring about these visions. And said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle in it. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto it a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of it. Now, this then brings us to the concept of another measuring line. And as we introduced in the first hour, the measuring line is for a person, for a reason of duration. It means something is going to be accomplished along the way and specifically at the end when presumably work is accomplished and brought to fruition. Um, It's a timeline, if you will. And it's also a tether, if you will. And so we want to feel that we're part of this measuring line. And we, brethren, are at the end of it, frankly. When you look at all of the prophecy that has happened, you look at the geopolitical events going on right now, and you look at the eminent return of Christ and the necessity to rescue Zion, we are at the end of this figurative timeline. I'm reading from Psalms... Psalms 102, verse 13 to 14. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. For the servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So this timeline, this measuring line, dictates that there is a set time for completion. And it's near at hand. This then attests to the preservation and historical witness of both God's people and his his holy city and that he would appear in Jerusalem at the end of the measuring line to restore it to a state of peace and prosperity. And we're told here in verse 4 that there will be a town without walls. Now, There's been a lot of discussion in Christadelphia using this frame, unwalled villages, haven't we, in Ezekiel 38. Walls, scripturally, when you do a word study of that and you check the context, of course, you'll find that to be unwalled many times is to be unwalled in terms of maintaining sound doctrine around one's home, one's ecclesia, or one's region or area. 
And consequently, when the nation of Israel has been racked by its wicked shepherds historically, it has been figuratively unwalled. And this is my interpretation of Ezekiel 38. Come, let us go up to the unwalled town or region of Jerusalem because she will be unwalled from her continued historical non-reliance upon Yahweh. But, you see, as this is played out and in terms of completion, there will be a wall around Jerusalem and that wall will be the presence of righteousness. It will be the presence of saints indwelling. It will be the presence of now a populace that finds it abhorrent to consider and to allow apostasy in its midst as we considered in the previous vision. Now, we have reference to fleeing from the land of the north. Verse 6, Come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, saith the Lord. The north was a shadowy, dark, and it means hidden, unknown, to cover over, to reference the north in the times of historical Israel was to reference an area that they were not familiar with. It was an area that was off limits, you might say, in Bible prophecy. And it was an area that represented Israel's, in the future, worst nightmare. Because the seventh vision sends two horsemen, two carabim horsemen, northward. That's a loading of hostility and of carabim activity north of Jerusalem and that's what that means and that's what that will require in the end time to resolve that pressing force and that enemy now what do we find north of Israel today we find all of her looming hostilities and governments and uh, things that are pressing down on her, do we not? We might look at that in terms of saying north of Israel is the west and eastern leg of Daniel's image where it stands, right? Um, it's Romish and it's in Constantinople and it represents the governments that are north. It represents the continent of Europe. It represents the residual of the First Reich, the Second Reich, and the Third Reich. We're talking about the um, Holy Roman Empire. We're talking about the rootings of Constantine. We're talking about um, Rome, the fourth beast. We're talking about the eastern leg of Rome. We're talking about the French Revolution. And all of that came about, the tenth part uh, that fell in Revelation 11. So we have France, Germany, we have Russia, of course, all of this. And now we have the EU, and of course we have the infamous papacy rooted in Italy. All of these hostilities 
are to the north. And that's what's represented here. Um, the call was to come forth out of these nations. And this made sense at the time of Zechariah as well because we considered only 49,600 and some came back from the Babylonian captivity. Where were all the rest of them? They found that they liked the living there. They liked Babylon. Today we have saints living, uh, or we, rather we have brethren preferring Babylon today. Do we not? Um, the cry is still relevant. Come out from Babylon today. There will be an end time cry as well to come out from Babylon. Come out of her, my children, will be the last call to Jewry to come out of the world and to go Zionward. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations, which spoileth you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. So after the glory in the return of Christ and the saints, and after they impact and save Zion, the cry will go out one more time for Jewry to draw homeward, where they will then be compelled to pass under the rod and to assume their role as a responsible, loyal citizen in Israel. Now, consider, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of my eye. This is a figurative phrase that's most interesting. The nations will have figuratively poked their finger in Yahweh's eye for the last time. That's a great insult to touch anybody's eye, the most tender part of the body. This is interesting as this is how God has looked at the insults he has received from the kingdoms of men. And there will be a time when this all comes to an end. Let's turn up Joel 3 for just a minute. Reading from verse 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the, cap- the captivity, this word captivity can throw you sometimes. It's, there are three different Hebrew words that captivity is rendered from. All three of them are used at the end of Ezekiel 39, so you want to look them up. But the rendering of captivity here is to restore to a former state of prosperity. So it makes sense now when you read captivity. Um, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will judge them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So this then takes our mind back to the four horns in the previous vision that have scattered Israel and Judah. Now, the valley of Jehoshaphat has been a stumbling block to some. You see that it's rendered from several Hebrew words, Yehoshaphat, or Yahweh's judgment to litigate, to contend, and to vindicate. Thus, it's not a valley, as some um, would propose, but it's a condition. It's a state 
It's a time of intense judgment. It needs to be laid right alongside Isaiah 34, verse 8, where we have that word, the controversy of Zion. Jehoshaphat and the controversy of Zion are similar thoughts. The controversy of Zion might be rendered uh, a resolution to a resolution to resolve for a forensic cause. Now, this means that the controversy of Zion will be resolution on an issue that has been historically ongoing and that needs to be resolved. It needs to be exposed. It needs to have judicial light shed on it and it needs to be exposed and resolved once and for all for the world and the nations have poked their finger in the eye of Yahweh one time too often, if you like that figuratism. So this is not a literal valley of Jehoshaphat, but it is a time of judgment and resolution, and it's the resolution of Armageddon, is it not? Armageddon a heap of sheaves and a valley or Jehoshaphat for judgment. Same concept, see? So pull these thoughts together in your mind. Now, Joel 3 and verse 12 continues. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the nations round about. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come down, for the press is full, and the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So you see the, con- the continuity of this thought with the great wine press and the wheat, the reaping of the vine of the earth in Revelation 14. So the language then leads us. The language leads us to Isaiah 63, where we're talking about the wine press and the reaping of the wine of the earth in Revelation 14, which is going to be thrown into the great wine press in Isaiah 63, and where the nations will be squeezed in a judgmental situation where there will be no resolution, no opportunity to renegotiate or to cry foul or to scream about rights being violated. Once the nations are in the wine press of Yahweh, there will be no letting them out until there is resolution. Now verse 10 reads, I will dwell in the midst of thee. I'm back in Zechariah 2. I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Yahweh shall inherit his portion in the Holy Land. How will he dwell in the midst of Israel in the future? Well, the Lord's portion, you recall, is spelled out to us in Ezekiel chapter 48. And this is in verse 8 to 13. Uh, I won't go there, but you recall that the holy oblation, the great raised up, Roughly 56 square mile plateau, the result of the earthquake in Zechariah 14, 
is a raised up plateau. This then will, is roughly the same territorial size as the allotment of Judah. So in that great Ezekiel's temple, Yahweh will be manifested in and through the sons of Zadok and his holy son. Will he not? This will be the glory in the midst of Israel. And we're told in um, Ezekiel 48 that the word for this oblation, Strong's word 8641, is rendered an offering, specifically a heave offering. So this is a neat picture. This raised up great plateau where Ezekiel's temple will be built is regarded as a great perpetual and constant heave offering. You remember what the Hebrews would do when they would make a heave offering. They would throw their best grain up into the air as if they are presenting it to Yahweh, recognizing that he, in essence, is the great sovereign landlord. So this, then, will be the presence of God in the future, acknowledgement of the great sovereign landlord who will rule from the temple in and through his son and his immortalized saints and his mortal Levitical hierarchy serving them and the mortal people. So how does Ezekiel 48 verse 35 end? The last verse in that book. It says that there will be a name for the city from that day and it shall be called Yahweh Shema. Yahweh Shema is rendered, the Lord is up there. Neat thoughts. So then, this is a snippet of what occurs at the end of the measuring line, which in figure is also a tether. So we want to feel like we're tethered by something, and we then can lay our mind alongside the Apostle Paul who, when he was chained in Rome, awaiting for his mortal death, could say, for the hope of Israel, I am bound by this chain. And we need to say the same thing on a daily basis. And we need to be proud of it. Elsewhere in Hebrews, we're told that we have an anchor to our soul, do we not? Same concept as a measuring line or a tether. The anchor to our soul were the promises made to Abraham, and because God could swear by none higher, he swore by himself. So, um, in the vernacular, um, you could say, you can take that to the bank and you can bet your life on it. Now we're ready to progress into the next vision. So we are ready for the vision here that we find 
in Zechariah 3, and I'll read that. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him, or the adversarial Samaritans that were in the land opposing the work that they were attempting to do. And you recall we said that they opposed and stopped the rebuilding for 15 years. Um, it didn't have to be 15 years, but it was 15 years because the the Hebrews allowed that to happen and they went back to their paneled rooms, as we're told in Ezra, which means they got sucked back into the world and their various and sundry projects and they kind of liked it and then neglected the word of God. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy rags and stood before the angel. He was actually working in his priestly garments, helping to literally get his hands dirty and rebuild and lay the foundation of this temple that they were obliged to rebuild. So he worked along with his fellows. He wasn't above them, and this wasn't work that was below him. Also, it means he did this in the day of his mortality. Filthy rags is a figurative type of our mortality. Our, our mortality is like our filthy flesh and figure, is it not? And he answered and spoke unto those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment or immortality at a due and appropriate time once the work is accomplished. Is what we might paraphrase here. And I said, Let them set a clean turban upon his head, so they set a clean turban upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So Michael, we might say, was supervising all of this. And it was to be reassuring to Joshua that this temple would be accomplished, it would be rebuilt, the worship would be restored in Zion at that time, and it would be established in the future by a greater than Joshua, which after all is from the Hebrew word Yahshua or Yah's salvation. And therefore we know that this is the name for Jesus in Hebrew, right? Yah shall save. Savior anointed. Jesus the Christ. Yah's salvation in and through the anointed one. This then we understand is prophetically applied here. And Michael, the angel, is the angel of the Lord. And he stands by and supervises this. And he will supervise things right up to the fruition of things when Christ returns. Now, in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those who stand by. So, 
here we have the phrase is to keep my courts, to walk in my ways. So we can break this down and we can say walk in my ways is, and it's stating God's expectations of us. We are expected to walk in Yahweh's ways. To keep my courts, we might say, keep is rendered to fence around as with thorns. Interesting, as with thorns. Do we regard maintaining and keeping purity of doctrine as a thorn hedge? Now this is a severe fence, is it not? This is what they throw up around native villages when they have um, packs of lions in Africa that have been ravaging the villages. The word of God is our fence roundabout. It keeps purity of doctrine and practice within, and it keeps marauding predators and harm from without. To keep, to fence around as with thorns. Charge, to keep Yahweh's charge is to watch. Therefore, we are to protect Yahweh's word and plan with intensity. It requires proactive saints. Now, chapter 3 um, ends with reference then to a stone with seven eyes. So on here, we've tried to show that. Seven eyes. Now, this number seven is uh, interesting because it references a number of times the seven spirits of Yahweh. There, there aren't seven spirits of Yahweh. There is one Holy Spirit. But this is a number of divine completion, is it not? Divine completion in and through the fulfillment of the covenant. And so we have the headstone that is studded with saintly eyes. We have saints attached to Christ in a future manifestation, and it should be us right now. Our eyes should be attached and focused on the headstone at all times. We want to be like Jacob, you recall, who awoke from a sleep where he was... uh, where he received the reaffirmation of the promises to Abraham. He slept with a stone for a pillow, which could induce dreaming with anybody. But he woke up. He no doubt saw this vision. He had the vision of Jacob's ladder. He saw angels working up and down, accomplishing God's will going from before Yahweh's throne as Michael does and returning to the earth with his host of angels to accomplish that will. And so now he woke up and he said, how awesome is this place? And he anointed the headstone. And this is what we do every day. We, We wake up, we say our prayers, We consecrate or we anoint the Christ headstone in our mind as we start our day. We see the plan and purpose of God and we begin our day 
as a saint headed for that kingdom. And Jacob woke up and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. So he was at Luz, remember, but he changed the name to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. It's 15 miles roughly north of Jerusalem. So it's part of the holy oblation of the future. So this then is what was seen, and this then is part of the vision of the seven eyes, seven divine completion, the saintly cherubim host, singularly focused on the headstone that will all factor into the new Jerusalem. Joshua and Zerubbabel were laying the foundation of the literal little temple in its rebuilding at that time, 519 B.C. This points toward Jesus, who upon his first advent did what? He laid the foundation of the spiritual temple, did he not? In calling out his apostles, in establishing and helping to lay the bedrock of the apostolic movement. He was laying the foundation for the future eyes that would stud his great work upon his second advent. Reading from 1 Peter 2, verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, speaking of Christ, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So this then is what I submit Jacob saw in his night vision. How could you not take the newly reaffirmed promises to Abraham, the vision of Jacob's ladder, awakening on a stone and consecrating it, and not pull all of these thoughts together and to have a grip on what this all meant. Now, this bit of imagery on the overhead comes to you from Ezekiel, the first chapter. Now, you remember this is the chapter of the wheels, if you will, and the eye-studded wheels. This is a neat picture that came from the uh, book, I believe it was uh, the Cherubim book that was out. So if you want to turn up Ezekiel for just a minute, we'll take a look at this. Now in the first chapter of Ezekiel, this thought comes specifically from um, the fourth verse and I looked and behold a whirlwind came out of the north a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and brightness was about it and out of the midst of it like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire so 
in verse 4, out of the midst of it, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Now, the word for color is rendered I, E-Y-E. Strong's word 5869. <clears throat> and it's used literally or figuratively, a fountain to think, resemble, knowledge. There's that word resemble again, right? Used in terms of our understanding of the cherubim, resemblance of the majesty. So here, the cherubim eyes and the saints are working in accord with the will of Yahweh, and they're doing his will. So the many eyes of Yahweh represent the multitudinous saints doing his administrative work, and they are all focused as a singular eye, which is what that's trying to depict there. Functioning out of a divine position of all knowledge as a fountain, as a fountain representing Yahweh's intellect in resemblance of the majesty. This then needs to factor into our understanding of the seven eyes studying, studying the headstone, which is Christ. Now, in Revelation 4, 6, we're told, round about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Yet we could say they were all focused in doing the will of God, the one seated on the throne. So don't let this multitudinous array or burst of eyes throw you. So build upon the headstone studded with the seven eyes, the multitudinous saints, is represented the entire spiritual house of Yahweh. In the kingdom there will be total vigilance to the will of God. All things will come under the supervision of his throne through the seven eyes and the headstone. I like this verse out of Isaiah 30, verse 20 to 21. It's relevant here. This is the way, walk you in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. In the kingdom age, one of the jobs of the saints will be to establish and to maintain law and order and total propriety. Yahweh's eyes and ears will go forth into every corner of the kingdom age, rooting out darkness, and that goes for all apostasy, and that goes for all wickedness. And our news is full of human wickedness, is it not? That will be rooted out by the eyes of Yahweh in the kingdom. So in concluding this, this vision, there is reference in... Zechariah 3 now, back again. And you'll notice in verse 9, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. I will engrave the engraving of it, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, what, what does this mean, you might wonder? Um, and I will remove the iniquity in one day. This is reference to a number of things. 
We touched upon the iniquity that would be removed in Zechariah chapter 13 from the local populace because there would be an abhorrence for wickedness even from within one's own household. This will be preceded by a cleansing of the land. This comes to us out of Zechariah 13, 8 to 9, which you may wish to turn up, and we'll read that into the record. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts in it shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left in it. Now this has been interpreted by some to be the Holocaust, which this, I feel, is a a wrong interpretation. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. We do not read it shall come to pass in all the land. We do not read Eretz Germany do we? This is Eretz Israel. This is happening in the land of Israel. Two parts in it shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will test them as gold is tested and they shall be called, they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say it is my people and they shall say, the Lord is my God. And the Holocaust survivors did not come out of that wretched experience and say, the Lord is my God. There are documentaries that many came out and they blasphemed God because they felt they'd been totally deserted. So this is helpful to understand. The use of the word parts in verse 8 is mouth to speak, ideologies, and perhaps I've said it represents the heathen dross in Israel today. Now, when you go to Israel, you're going to find that it's a hodgepodge of ethnic entities. You have the Arabic. You have the disgusting Christian shrines all over. You have the Eastern Orthodox uh, tin tinsel-type lamps hanging in their uh, chapels. You have the... um, um, You have the string pullers, you have Christian shrines all over, and periodically throughout the day you'll hear the crackle, crackle of an old loudspeaker, and you'll hear the wail of Muslim songs and chants. That, to me, represents the two-thirds, the dross that will be burned off and removed from Israel, aside from secular Jewry who doesn't buy into this return of Christ uh, thing one bit. Now, you'll notice in verse 9, the third part is a different word for parts. And it's a feminine gender, interestingly enough, which is nice when you're talking about uh, an ecclesia or a religious system to be. And it's used uh, part, rank, And you can draw from the use of Ezekiel's parable. And it's also considered allotment, portion, or inheritance. So I have said perhaps this represents a repentant Jewish remnant prepared by teachings of Elijah and the saints. Brother John will develop this for you more in his portion. 
So you can see this is a logical cleansing of the nation of Israel to lay this third part of mortal Jewry alongside the um, Israel of God, which represents spiritual Israel. And so together, this contingency will form Yahweh's goodly battle horse going forth with the saints in the campaigns into the north country. This is a thought, um, something for you to ruminate upon. Now, uh, let me have you turn up Isaiah for just a minute, please. Let's go to Isaiah 4. And it'll lend a little more credence to this thought. So Isaiah 4, and I'll read verse 1 to 4. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and splendid for those who are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion... You see, that's a rather ominous phrase. He who is left in Zion and he who remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from his midst by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning. Another companion verse is Isaiah 22. And we'll read from Isaiah 22, verse 25 to 27. Let's see. Or, or 20, let's see, Isaiah 22. Well, I, I have that reference crossed up. So forget that thought. Now, we're reminded in Romans 11, the grafting chapter, and we're told there in verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So there's a set time to favor Zion. The ungodliness of Jacob, Jacob is used to represent mortal Israel, and Israel the use of the term Israel by context will represent spiritual Israel. So we have all Israel to be saved. This represents a mortal contingency that is cleansed and brought through the fire. And what does fire do? It burns off the dross and it leaves a pure metal. 
So the drops will be skimmed off. The purified or cleansed one-third remnant will then be brought alongside and will become part of this all-Israel clause, of course, represented by Christ and its immortalized hierarchy. This then represents a grafting back in, if you will. Grafting is a most interesting concept. Brother Thomas writes in Eureka, Volume 1, page 151, But if Israel be the dross of silver, the Gentiles are the dross of brass, iron, lead, and tin. The Gentile dross is of no more value than Israel's, for God has concluded all under sin. Israel boasts in Moses and pays no regard to what he prescribes, and the Gentile bepraises Jesus with their ears while their ears are closed and their hearts steeled against his teaching and commands, so that Jews and Gentiles are both guilty before God. They have all, therefore, to be gathered into a furnace glowing with intense combustion before their races can attain to the blessedness that is to come upon all nations through Abraham and his seed. Jesus, Jews and Gentiles must be melted in the fire of Yahweh's wrath, which fire will glow at the feet of the Son of Man. So this then concludes that vision. And I think I'll stop here.